0: Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip and commentary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? These people have got very short fuses. And if you go too far with them, and you say the wrong thing, they can explode. I've been locked in a cubicle with them on my own. And if they did lose the plot, I mean, they could kill you in a heartbeat. You allow them to think that they control you, but of course, at the same time, you're controlling
1: them. I'm Nicola Tallant, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's the UK's number one true crime author, and he's made his name from his conversations with serial killers. Christopher Berry D has sat in cells with some of the most dangerous and depraved killers, getting up close and personal with those often described as monsters. But what drives this former Royal Marine intelligence officer to a life less ordinary? And what spurred him to start talking with the world's most evil inmates? This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. It's an unusual job. It could be, yes. We always we always look
0: for the best in people in life. And I find it absolutely fascinating why the public at large around the world just seem to be fascinated by the worst in life. You know, more every day there's a program, every other night there's a soap or something on about crime in one degree or, or another and and it's the extremes of violence that that people are so attracted to. This is why serial killers are, and, and strangely enough, 90% of books written about serial killers are bought by, by women.
1: Yes, I mean that's uh, intriguing in itself and they are by and large the audience for a lot of true crime podcasts and they like to read true crime books. Now you're the number one true crime author in the UK. So you've actually made this a commercial success for yourself, this talking to serial killers. And you're also going to be, I think, a, a guest speaker at the CrimeCon conference coming up in London in September, fingers crossed, that'll go ahead. Um, Which again is the commercialization of it all. And um. You know, it'll be interesting to see whether it's women or men who come to who come to that. Um, but how did you first get involved? Because it's not exactly something that you can go and study in college or something that you would see in the, in the job columns. How did you first realize that talking to cel- serial killers was going to take you into retirement and perhaps beyond? Well, it, it actually is.
0: It wasn't. It's not the commercial side of it, and it's certainly not the money side of it. That doesn't come into it. It, it came about many years ago that my grandfather, Oscar Berry Tompkins, was the solicitor for William Henry Kennedy, who was a one of two killers who shot a police officer in Essex in 1927, the PC gutteries. They blew his eyes out. It's a very famous case. And... I remember going into a sort of a junk shop in Southampton, and I was browsing through—I don't know why—I found some old times newspaper cuttings, uh, dating back to that time. And I just pulled it for some reason. I pulled it down. Could be God's will. I don't know. And there was there was this article about my grandfather in this case, and it was well They used to report them in the Times in those days, very in great detail. And I bought these old newspaper cuttings, and then I bought a book called Notable Trials on on this case. And I thought I'd write a book about it. And i had never written a book in my life. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. Anyway, to cut a long story short, it was rejected by W.H. Allen. By Fluke, a local bookshop owner knew Eric Dobby, the managing director. He sent it off. A month later, Robin O'Dell, the true crime historian, who was their consultant, wrote back and said, it's the worst manuscript I've ever seen in my life. It's terribly written, but the research is impeccable because I based it on Section 51 documents that I found. And he said, it, it, w- it would please me if, if you wrote the long drop and I would co-author it with you. And that's how I started. And then after that, I did Craig and Bentley and got um, Derek Bentley a posthumous pardon. That made the film... Let Him Have It starring Christopher Eccleston. And that's how it started. And, of course, those days I was a budding author. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. But bit by bit, Robin O'Dell mentored me. And and then it slowly got met. It, it got, the Derek Bentley case got onto a Croydon television program. Um, and then the producer of that program, Fraser Ashford, said, look, you've been writing to serial killers, haven't you? I said, yeah, it was like a hobby, really. He said, how would you like to make a 12-part series and go out there? And that's
1: how it started. So just rewind there a minute. You, Your hobby on the side, now, by the way, for anyone listening, your previous career, you had been a Royal Marine and you were in the intelligence section. So you were, um, you know, that obviously had been an interesting career in itself. But you were writing to serial killers as a hobby. So... Where did that come from? And how did you first pick up pen to paper and decide that you were going to communicate with these people that many of us would consider to be monsters?
0: Well, a lot of us, a lot of a lot of people buy the we buy these true crime magazines, you know, they're the true crime monthly and stuff like that. And way back then, way, way back, there was a series called the Murder Case Book Series. Um, Bill Waddell, the um then creator of the Black Museum uh, had articles in it, some notable TV personalities were writing in it. And I started collecting them. And I didn't realise at the time they were a couple of quid each, but I didn't realise the series was 240 issues. (laughs) So I ended up collecting these things and then spending another five on the binders. Um, and I, I just collected them and read about these fascinating characters, all these evil people and the doctors and the psychiatrists and the police involved. And, and so using those magazines, I thought, well, I'll write to Arthur Shawcross or I'll, I'll drop a line to Harvey Carrington and see what happens or Kenneth Bianchi. And some of them started to reply. And then
1: I thought, well, what, what if I can find out a little bit more about them? And, and that's how it really started. So, tell us about Arthur Shawcross, who was one of the first serial killers that you did write to. Arthur Shawcross, um, dubbed by the media the
0: Monster of the Rivers, he 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 was um, one of about three siblings. He started um, uh, uh, torturing little animals. He would throw kittens into a pond, watch them drown, shooting birds. Um, that's how he started off. Then he. He went to Vietnam. Um, he said he was a Rambo, um, that he went out in the jungle as a one-man killing team, shooting these Vietnamese women and skinning them alive and eating them. He was actually just a store clerk. He never went anywhere near the front line, and um, and he went to prison for the murder of um, two two little kiddies, uh, a little boy and a little girl. Karen Ann Hill and Jack Blake um, murdered them. And he went to prison and he did a plea bargain agreement. And instead of being locked up for life, he got 22 years. And then he wheedled his way into the prison psychiatric unit and he combed the shrinks. And uh, he ended up actually counselling other inmates. And he got parole after 15 years. And, and the, some of the psychiatrists said, don't let him out. He's a psychopath. He'll kill again. Well, they let him out. And he went on to kill about 11 working girls, prostitutes. I wrote to him. I wrote several letters to him over a course of a year or so, and I didn't get a reply. And then I thought, well, I'll try another tack, i tried another tack. And then I suddenly got a reply from him. And then I said, look, you know, I'd like to come and obviously." meet you, and he, that's why he became part of the TV series, and as a result of that relationship I had with Shaw Cross and the woman he wanted to marry, who had about 13 kids from a lot of other men, um, one of these murder groupie women's called Clara Neal, bless her, she's dead now, um, I managed to clear up a cold case out of Kimberly Logan in Rochester, uh, and I did some stuff with the Rochester PD, Homicide people met the cops, went to the crime scenes and um, I got a confession out of him for the murder of, basically the murder of um, this, this girl, this woman.
1: So when you first put pen to paper about him, or to him rather, Christopher, did you say to him who you were, where you lived? Did you give him a little bit of yourself or did you pretend to be somebody else? No, I, I was I was me. I mean, when I was writing to Serial Killers,
0: obviously I'd had two books published by then. That was The Long Drop and Dad, Help Me, Please. So I was able to put in like this. I'm thinking about writing a chapter in, in a book. Um, this is who I am. I'm ex-Marine. Um, these are two of my book covers. Um, but I always use something innately inside me told me that I've got to play to their ego. I've got to give them something because they're just basically a prison number now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to come all the way from England to see you. You're an important person. Um, I've got some doubts about your guilt, which they love to hear. I mean, that's like stroking their feathers. And also, you know, they've got a great deal of disrespect for their own judicial system. And they, 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 the Americans absolutely do adore the British criminal justice system. So layering all that BS on top of it appeals to their psychopathology. And then they can say, look, I've I've got an Englishman coming here with a film crew and I'm famous again. And that's that's one of the little tricks I use in my book to catch them.
1: So like all good journalists, you told a little white teeny weeny lie or you certainly put yourself in a place as being maybe their friend for a little while until you got in and then... You went out with your uh, your interview, you, were, you didn't need to play that role anymore.
0: Uh, only the teeniest, weeniest, weeniest little lie. Um, but the thing is, one has to remember that psychopaths are control freaks, like narcissists. You allow them to think that they control you, but of course, at the same time, you're controlling them.
1: Of course. and And obviously, I mean, I'm sure your first time in a prison sitting opposite a serial killer was pretty interesting and exciting. Um, as your career went on, I think you've interviewed more than 30 in total, so you probably get kind of used to it. But at all points, are you actually in control in the interview? Have you remained that way because you've gone in with a mindset that you know what you're dealing with?
0: My first serial going back to my first serial killer, was Michael Ross, who Um, The Roadside Strangler on death row at uh, Summer's Prison, Connecticut. Um, I went over there without a film call. I went just with a tape recorder. I'd been writing to Michael for two years. I mean, this takes a lot of, you know, getting getting in. He had an IQ of 150 plus. um, Cornell graduate. He looked like the boy next door. He wore spectacles. He looked very bookish. Um, And... He, by then, he'd regarded me as a friend. I had him unshackled, and, um, you know, he was all Uh, buddy-buddy. Karen Clark, a very hard-nosed American journalist, interviewed him, and she said, if I was walking down a dark alleyway street and I heard footsteps behind me and I turned around and saw Michael Ross, I would be relieved. He looks like the boy next door. I got on very well with Michael, but there were some unsolved cases that I was partic- that he hadn't. He was convicted of five murders, but there were two that he wouldn't talk to the police about. And I thought, over time, I thought, I might be able to crack that because the next of kin, they must be still grieving. They, they haven't got closure yet. And as a result of me working with... The police out there—a little bit of entrapment—which upset my producer because I caught him out on camera. I mean, we were filming him at the time when I did it. Um, he he confessed to two murders, two more murders, which cleared that up. But he was very easy to get on with. He was non-threatening. He, you know, he described his crimes in great detail. He got a great lot, real pleasure of how he killed and the terrible things he did. But. Um, he was, he, he was non-threatening, so he was like my, my, you know, I lost my serial killer virginity talking to quite a nice serial killer. <laughs> and then sometimes they go a bit crazy
1: and they get upset. Is he one of the few you liked? No, I don't actually, when I say I like them, I mean... Comparably, I suppose.
0: You know, it, I mean, there's killers that I just despise. Well, absolutely, I'm in control because you can't just go and knock on the door and say, "Can I come and interview you?" You know, you, I need to know all about their back history, their narrative, where they went to school, what their parents were like, what their education was, their jobs, their girlfriends, their wives, their likes and dislikes. So I know as much about the killer as is possible. And so, therefore, I know what his likes are or his dislikes are, what buttons to push, what buttons not to push. It's a bit like going through Moscow's main airport. And you go through immigration, and they look at their screens and they know more about you than you do. <laughs> so, no, I'm not, I'm completely in control. I know if I want to touch them or get up close to them, I can. If they lose their temper, I know exactly what to do because people think, oh, you must be scared. But one has to remember, these people only kill the elderly, uh, working girls on the streets who are vulnerable, like Peter Sutcliffe. Um, They very, very rarely attack a man. Shipman, he murdered old people. He wouldn't try and murder a grown man, you know, a fit man. These guys are cowards. So if I'm with them and they start getting threatening, I just look at them with a blank expression. Sometimes I'll tap them on the shoulder or smile and I'll just say, so what? And their brain stops. They can't, they think I've got, their brain goes into like a a factory setting, default sex. They think, oh, I've not scared him.
1: What do I do now? (laughs) Presumably the prison setting is is a safe environment anyway to come up close and personal with a psychopath. I mean, if... I was to do so, I think either a courtroom or a prison would be the two places I would choose because you are pretty safe in those environments, aren't you? Well, let's put it this way. You don't want to
0: meet one and interview him outside a prison.
1: Not particularly. You certainly don't want them in your car or down a dark alley or something. But uh, There are occasions where
0: where, where the authority, the prison itself insist on either behind a perspect screen or fully shackled like Dougie Clark was. But I prefer it to be... If I'm with a film crew, obviously I've got a film crew in with me and I'm, you know, relatively good, but these people have got very short fuses. And if you if you, if you go too far with them and you say the wrong thing, they can explode. But on with Short Cross and a number of others... I've been Bianchi, I've been locked in a cubicle with them on my own. And if they did lose the plot, I mean they could kill you in a heartbeat. But but again, it's that the confidence you built up a relationship, you know what they're like. You know, it's a game of fishing really, it's mind control.
1: And uh you know, you say that they can often look so normal on the outside and they can, and they can, they live amongst us. They live beside us sometimes. Are they, you know, we can pass psychopaths all the time on the street. I'm sure we don't in our lifetimes necessarily pass a serial killer unless, you know, we put ourselves into, into contact with them. But is there something about them that's, it's obviously something about them that's inherently different, but, is there something that you can feel about them or is there something in their eyes or, or what is it that you can decipher that they are wrong? Well, I have
0: written a book recently and it's called Talking With Serial Killers and it's about, in the subtitle is Stalking. And, and I find this stalking aspect very fascinating because serial killers, whether they're subconsciously thinking about killing and they do a snatch and grab off the street um, or a taxi driver, he's thinking about it all the time and he gets a young girl, she's drunk and he kills her, or rapes her, or the ones that stalk for a long time, like Colonel Russell Williams did, the Air Force Colonel in Canada. They get a great deal of pleasure out of stalking and watching because that's a control thing, you know. They, they've got power over life and death, and that's a very scary thing. But I'm always mindful of a comment made by Ted Bundy years ago, well, not Ted Bundy himself, but one of his girls down at Tallahassee, when I was down in Tallahassee. And I was interviewing her from the program. And she said, he went, to the, he went to this club at the Florida State University. And there was lots of girls dancing. And there was this man standing on the stairs. And he was watching. And everybody felt uncomfortable about him. There was something creepy about him. And directly after that party finished, that do finished, he went into the Cayamiga house and bludgeoned two girls to death and went on to try to kill another girl. And it was that women have got this instinct about men that men don't have. Women suss it. They can smell it somehow, that the guy's too oily or too smooth or he's too much BS in it. Um uh, probably shouldn't say this, but British women are a lot more switched on than American women. You've got American women who are these murder groupies who want to marry these people and stuff, they get attracted to them. But women do sense
1: evil in a
0: man much more than a man would do.
1: So it's a kind of animalistic thing and maybe women are more intuitive. Yes. And they will stalk their prey and they will watch their prey and pick them out and...
0: Once a serial killer has zeroed in on somebody, basically, I mean, Michael Ross said to me several times, I mean, he was driving, he was an insurance salesman for Prudential in um, New York State. And he he used to drive around in the daylight in the suits, knocking on doors, selling insurance. But in the back of his mind all the time was homicide and fantasies and stuff like that. And he'd see a girl walking along the road in broad daylight, maybe on a country lane, there was traffic. And he'd pull up and then he would he would wind his window to get out and say, Excuse me, can you give me directions so and so? And before the girl knew it, she was she was taken away and, and
1: killed. But they aren't all men. And I think you have concentrated somewhat over your career in the women. Now they are unusual creatures. <laughs> Well, women are not unusual creatures. Don't put me on the
0: spot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing wrong with women at all, trust me. I did write a um, book Talking with Female Serial Killers, which I think is quite interesting. We've got Rudyard Kipling's quote, you know, females are more deadly than the male. I don't, but um, female serial killers, yes, I've met a few of those. Uh, Cathy Maywood and Gwendolyn Graham, who suffered five suffocated five patients in a uh, elderly patients in a nursing home in Grand Rapids. Aileen Wernos, of course, we made the film um, Monster. I, I, I got on very well with Aileen. Um, you know, she had a terrible childhood. It breaks your heart. Um,
1: and actually, Christopher, in the film Monster, she is portrayed as quite a sympathetic character. Um was that did that come from your book and from your own dealings with her
0: well the thing the interesting thing was that i'd already written a chapter in one of my books on lee and i, I don't get upset i mean i've got pretty thick skin and, and and i was writing this chapter and the more i researched lee i thought i've got to have a woman in one of my books otherwise you know it's not fair and what the more i started researching her childhood it was so upsetting what she'd gone through with her stepfather and her parents and everything else. I was drinking nearly a bottle of whiskey a day. One part I was in tears and I suddenly brought myself up and I thought, Chris, is this a, a man woman thing? you because she's a woman that you're getting upset? And so I went into it in real detail. I wrote this chapter and of course I'd written, I could only get a chapter in a book, you've got a word count. And then um, all of a sudden, um, my publisher said, Chris, um, we need to get – there's a a film coming out called Monster with Charlie Steer on, and and they need a book to go with it, and they need some research material and stuff. Could you write a book on called Monster? I said, yeah, well, a couple of years, a year or so. He said, no, you've got 32 days. (laughs) I wrote it in 24. I'd already got all the research material now the movie is only 90 minutes or something long and they, I think for very good reasons they left out all the details of her childhood, I don't think that was necessary for the silver screen but the film itself, I think is pretty good, I think it's a damn good film and I think that they handled it quite well. It was not really sensational at all, not like some of the movies about. So, yeah, it was a good, a good movie, but her life was very, very tragic and very sad. And the fact that they executed her, she'd obviously gone completely insane towards the end. There were, there were corrupt cops involved. I mean, it, and the men, one thing about Lee was that she was an interstate hooker. She was a bisexual. She had a lovely girlfriend called Taria Moore. She doted on Taria, do anything for her—the first love she'd ever had in all of her sad life. This girl, and um, she had over two hundred clients, but she killed six or seven. I say seven. And I asked myself, why did she? Why did she kill those? Well, because a lot of the clients wanted to go to trial and say, look, she was a good girl. She paid. You paid the money. You've got the business, and we all were happy. So, what upset Lee with these seven men? Well, they tried to beat her about, knock her about, rape her, not pay her, and she had a gun. And I always say in my talks and lectures, if if that had happened to Peter Sutcliffe or the guy in Ipswich, and a guard of girl pulled out a revolver and shot him because he he was beating the hell out of her, that would have stopped.
1: So basically, they got their comeuppance. Mm-hmm. Peter Sutcliffe, uh, another serial killer you did write a lot about. Did you ever come to a conclusion about why he was killing girls the way he was? What What was in his narrative? Well, uh, he was a narcissist
0: even when he kicked off. I mean, he was a self groomer. He spent all the time standing in front of a mirror for four hours, combing his hair, making himself look cool. A very odd personality, even a young man. His father was a very domineering man. His brother was a tough guy. He was basically the runt of the brood, a bit of a mummy's boy. He adored his mummy. And then he suddenly found out that his mother was having an affair, cheating on his dad. And his father was obviously a man about town. And it, it, it really upset, you know, the Peter thought his mother, oh my God, you know, Catholic family. She's, oh my, what a horrible woman. And he built up a hatred towards his mother. And then he met this girl, this woman who he eventually married. And then during their engagement, she had an affair. And he caught her out. And Sonia was a bit, not quite the full wicket. I mean, she's quite a clever girl, but she, you know, I think she's Polish or Czechoslovakian, but. And he built up this hatred and hatred, and then he, this hatred boiled over to the fact that he hated women in general. Most serial killers do hate women in general. There's an underlying thing that is a hatred. And you can tell by Peter's crimes, the ferocity is an overkill. It's going in extremis. And that shows an anger, a hatred they despise. So he was he was he was satisfying this inner anger this frustration of being a nobody and that's why he killed i think he only had there was only one incident where he did have anything resembling sex with one of his victims and that was because they pulled off into a car park or yard but there was another car there and she was saying well look give me the money i've got to go back to work you know short time 15 quid or 50 quid whatever it was and so he had to make some effort. And then when the other car drove off, he killed her.
1: And Sonia Sutcliffe, like many women who are married to these guys, didn't have a clue that this other violent world existed for her husband. Um, are they usually vulnerable women? or Are they ordinary, normal women who just happen to get a bad hand of cards when they get married? Good question. Um,
0: with Sonia, I mean, she's got a lot of stick over the years. I mean, she has made some rather, um, rather silly comments and uh, drawn unwanted attention to herself. Uh, but she, had, she didn't have a clue that Peter Sutcliffe was killing people. Um, Tina Sam's, who I, you know, Michael Sam's, who kidnapped um, Stephanie Slater, uh, um, and the girl and uh, kidnapped her, spent a lot of time with um, Sam's, the kidnapper extortionist, murderer, the one-legged guy this is uh but Tina had no idea that Michael was a killer and extortionist. And in fact, on the night it came onto Crime Watch, he was sitting having a glass of red wine with Tina in their cottages at Sutton, Sutton on Trent. Um and there's there's his voice is being played because he left a message on a police on a on a answer phone. There's a photo fit of him. There's a railway badge he's got that is distinctive to him and his and his car, the description of the car that's parked right outside their front door. And there's Michael's voice. And Tina just sat there and she just looked at it and didn't twink. And a lot of women in America, you've got women married to BTK. Um, you know and they do not have a clue, and there could be lots of red flags in the relationship. You know, um, the guy's suddenly going out at night and putting an aftershave on, and he's putting, a, he's putting a, a suit on. Um, he could, you know, women have suddenly looked at bank account and finally been using credit cards and debit cards to and for and some sort of bachelor's parlor or something like that. But women generally they don't they got children and they go the husband goes to Sunday school and they go barbecues and they go fishing at weekends, but, but underneath there's this mask, it's a mask of evil, and they don't get
1: it. Well, it's probably in fairness the last thing you would think of. You know, you might think the husband was cheating or he was a bit distant, but I'm just not a hundred percent sure it would jump to mind that he was out there chopping up other ladies. With Jerry Brudos
0: in America, he had a uh, shoe fetish. I mean, he's quite, he was he's in that series, um, Mindhunter on Netflix, and um, and Jerry, big guy, and he was married to a much younger girl, and they lived in an ordinary little two, two, 2 bedroom condo bungalow place, what they call them in America, and he was chopping up women and walling parts of them up in his garage, and and I don't want to be. Upset people that <laughs> what you're going to say. I'm going to say now, but he made he made like moulds of the women's breasts and put them and, and put them in the house as ashtray things. And she and she said I hadn't got a clue. And one room she wasn't allowed into; it was locked. And she actually said, "Well, there was a lot of banging and sawing going on in there, but he wouldn't let me in there."
1: <laughs> Can you imagine that happening on Hailing Island? <laughs> Well, I just, I think you'd feel pretty stupid. Speaking of Ireland, can you give me any explanation as to why we don't actually have a serial killer? Well, Ireland hasn't got one. No. Because you're more intelligent. That's why. Simply, is that it? (laughs) (laughs) There's a few sort of suspected cases where, obviously, where it's suspected that that killers are, you know, attackers have possibly been responsible for a few killers, one in uh, murders, one in particular of missing women. There is a suspect identified as possibly um, the one responsible for a number of them, but we just don't seem to cultivate serial killers. We cultivate lots of other screwed up men, but we just seem to have escaped the old uh, serial killers. I know we've obviously a much smaller population than, um, you know, and the UK or America, where where they seem to be fairly popular, uh, but yeah, it's always I always find it quite curious. Um, are serial killers as likely nowadays to get away with crime over an ongoing period of time, with the development of forensics, CCTV? You know, I suppose you'd have geo tracking. Um, you like to think, or we all maybe like to think that law enforcement are talking to each other a bit more these days that computer programs will pick up, uh, you know, where there, there might be similar MOs and crimes and that. Is it harder nowadays to be a serial killer? I wouldn't know. <laughs> I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> um, hang on a minute. I'll
0: go out tonight and I'll tell you. Um, you're quite right. I mean, we've got our geographical boundaries for the countries, like you know, 70 miles from any sea, from any one time, basically. So that's one thing. So the territory for a serial killer to use is is somewhat squashed in. Um, you're right. You've got CCTV. You've got uh, telephonic trafficking, which they caught Joanne Dennahy, the English serial killer. I wrote the book Love of Blood on her. Um, that was They caught her basically by using the phone masks and stuff like that. CCTV, very, very difficult these days, um, especially with modern forensics. Um, we've, had a, we've actually had a lot of serial killers in this country, um, but I think they're probably starting to watch programs like CSI and thinking, how can I get away with this one? But in America, a lot of it's, um, you know, it's it, different states, different law uh, jurisdictions. The killer can move freely around the country. Um, it's only re- really in recent years that the FBI and the Behavioural Science Unit at Quantico have got their act together and they can now profile a lot better. But, I, I you know, I think these days, fingers crossed we're still going to get a serial killer emerge at some time because they, 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 are, they are in the community. But I think that these days they're going, to, they're going to get caught very, very quickly if they're not careful.
1: And, of course, the successful ones, obviously, uh, by their very nature, can go on for years and, and continue with their crimes. Well, that actually is a good point. It, it, just to come in on that, if there
0: are literally like a series of killings and there's actually no clues to be had, that tells the police that this person is forensically aware. So they're looking for an organised serial killer that, and that will then tell him the days of the week that he's he's killing. Is he unemployed or employed? It, so many different things that these forensic psychologists can look at now and look beneath. And, and, it, and we all remember Locard's principle that every contact leaves a, a trace. So you go into a room It could be a hair, you could come back with a fibre of the woman's carpet on your thing. That's Every contact leaves leaves a trace. What I've been developing is the fact that, and and it's not just me, but David Cantor and a lot of others, is that a killer's behaviour at the crime, how he treats the victim, what he leaves behind if he doesn't, His MO, his his start to feel his his, his way of living. That is a contact. That's that is a low card principle, but not physical things, but actually sort of psychological things that he's leaving. He's he's leaving a signature,
1: and 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 that's where it gets very fascinating. And I presume you can reverse that and look at the victim. Oh yes, victimology. Yeah,
0: if you look at Ted Bundy's victims. You can see them—a montage of them on the internet. They all look like sisters. Um, in fact, some of them were sorority sisters. Uh, and you know, when you get a bunch of sorority girls getting
1: murdered, and this guy's around the campus, he knows his way around the campus. Am I right in saying you concluded in the case of Ted Bundy that he killed because he was once rejected?
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, he he did a. a Again, he, 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 uh, he, he was a narcissist, but it is the fake. He, he wanted somebody that he never could be. He was like a, Michael Ross said it's like he felt like a spider climbing up a pane of glass, and every time he got to the top, he fell down again, like snakes and ladders. You almost got to the top of the ladders and you fall down. And Ted went like that way. He met a very beautiful upper class girl, tried to ingratiate himself with her, um, want to be politician. But she was basically out of his league and her father twigged on that basically Ted was full of bull. And he, he, you know, they were a wealthy family they didn't want their daughter associating with this this man. And that was a grudge. He couldn't handle that. And that's why he went out and killed in her image.
1: Mm -hmm. The crime groupies you talk about, the serial killer groupies, is there any way of psychologically explaining that? Now the best way
0: to to do with them is to you see. This is this is where I really do get angry because, and it's not often I get emotional about it, but whenever I get a chance to say, anybody that wants to fall in love with one of these monsters needs to be executed, because there are so many killers that a lot of them I still correspond with that have committed the most. Atrocious crimes. And yet they they've got dozens, The happy face killer, Keith Hunter Jesperson. He boasts about 40, 50 girls writing to him, sending him photographs and stuff. But and then you've got ones that want to marry him, like Ted like Kenneth Bianchi, or the groupies that were chasing Ted Bundy, wanting to have a child with him. They need their heads examined because surely they go, they can look at the scenes of crime photographs and and look at the children they raped and dismembered and murdered and
1: think, well, do I really want a baby with this man? Is it a kind of an exaggerated version of when women believe that they can uh, tame a man or, you know, is it that they believe they can cure them?
0: Clara Neal said to me about Arthur Shawcross because he actually she actually asked me if I'd be the best man at his wedding. So I, I sort of agreed, tongue-in-cheek. Um, and, and she said, look, if Arthur gets released, I'll make sure he stays on the medication. <laughs> I mean, you're not... But the thing is, men are just as bad because men... Um, I wrote a book called Murder.com. I worked with the FBI and, and Russia's state police. is these dating agencies... <laughs> And you get some retired colonel from Budley Sultan who's in a wheelchair on a Zimmer frame, falls in love with some Russian girl, looks like Anna Kornikova, and, and she tells him she loves him, and he starts sending her his pension. <laughs> and then some of these killers actually go to Russia, and they're told, look, you know, bring... Ten thousand dollars, because you you can't change it. You, you have to be brand new dollars, because otherwise they won't exchange to rates
1: to rubles. And they get off the plane, and they're never seen again. Indeed, not. There's no explaining. Some people, is there? Well, the internet
0: is a great place to be, but stalking is not just in the physical world, like somebody following us down the street. People stalk. People, men and women, stalk prey on the internet. They use these chat rooms, the BDSM chat rooms, like uh, John Robinson, the Bodies in the Barrel murderers on death row in Kansas. Um, they set up these traps, and they lure women or guys to these locations, and and they will either rob. I mean, the simplest example is you get all these African. Princes sending emails to say, "Look, my my father's a king, and he's just had a few problems. He's in jail, but we've got two two million pounds tucked away. If you could send us fifty k, we'll share the rest with you." It, it, it it's an extension of that. It, there are these common and crooks out there, and there are killers out there, and women. And we've had it in England as well. Um, other killers have used the internet to entrap somebody, and they get killed. and And it's it, so
1: stalking is an internet phenomenon as well. Would you know now from all the work you've done in this arena, would you know a psychopath if you were talking to them? Uh, <laughs> I, I, would, I would do it
0: this way. I would, this is what I would think would be the best way to do it. And this applies to girls and, and, and guys, but specifically girls. If a, if a guy is too oily or smooth, and too over charming, and too almost too good to be true. I would look beneath that mask and think, this guy is something not right here. He's he, he, he's he's there's something right. That's a trigger. And because he's putting on a, you know, then you you say, well, where do you live? Oh, I still live with, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a businessman, but at the moment I'm living with my mum. <laughs> And then, and then look at his shoes. If he's, I mean, you know, I've got a couple of examples to give you that a girl's taken a, a, a boyfriend home and he's told the father that, you know, he's a businessman. And the dad looks at his shoes and thinks, well, but you get those shoes, need a damn good clean. They've got plastic soles on them. And, oh, your shirt cuffs look like they've been trimmed with a pair of scissors. There's already little giveaways,
1: you know. I have to say, given your experience, I think they're excellent tips for anybody to to take on. Um, you're still interested in the work
0: love it, I'm doing Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey Dahmer inside his head at the moment Uh, I've got all the FBI stuff, I've got all the exhibit stuff and bits and pieces, that I'm researching it, Um, the cannibal um, you know necrophile, um, fascinating man, his childhood and looking through his narratives and what I do uh, with these, these killers is I look at from the day they were born, the history right up to the time the present day executed or whatever and there are waypoints in and this is an important thing very briefly if a child's brought up in a healthy happy home with 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 good schooling and good parents then the child is much in different times in his life when decisions have to be made he's able to make more decisions in a more social and a correct way a child who's brought up unfortunately in a dysfunctional home where there's alcohol drugs absentee from school, divorces, a lot of stresses going on in that child. Formative years, that child becomes indoctrinated to it. So later on in life, when it has to make a decision between something, go one way or the other, like a waypoint in his life, he's unable, that child's unable to make a good decision. And that's one of the problems at the moment with society. We've got... Fear kids running the streets at night when they should be in bed at a sensible time, throwing abuse at police officers, no respect for the law of their
1: neighbours. Those children will go on and it costs society a lot of money and, and it's not good. Mm. And we're hearing we're hearing that quite a lot from all sorts of experts in the field. You, I started by asking you, um, or by pointing out maybe to you that it was an unusual career choice. Um, but I think that... You seem to have an ability to be able to compartmentalize what you do in work, and not take it with you in your ordinary life. You're not haunted by any of these stories. You seem to be, you know, have a very black and white approach to to it. You're, um, you know, you're you're able for it. Many people wouldn't be. Well, just, I mean, the thing is, I don't. People think,
0: oh, what is a best-selling author? He must make lots of money. You know, you know when you're a, a young actor and stuff, and you're going to acting school and stuff. You know, you, everybody knows that you could put your life into acting, uh, studying, and never get a part in a play or a film. You know, and and the same with authors; you could spend years writing books and you probably never get it published. My my, for some reason, I, God, God, thank you, Lord. It, it's like something's happened in my life where there's been a progression, and because of the dedication I put into it. And I can spend hundreds and hundreds of hours researching that you couldn't put a price on that and then you're getting material and then, you know, and you you sort of, you don't have a big social life. You're absolutely soaking up. And, and you suddenly see you're getting results because you're helping the next of kin find the daughter or something like that. They're the big payoffs. Um, but I have to, you're right, compartmentalise. Um, I don't lose any sleep. Um, I have a drink at night. I say my prayers. I go to bed. I wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee. And I just, its a, to me, it's an ordinary job. But if I let it affect me, then I, I, I would have to stop because it would, I'd lose all objectivity.
1: Well, it would be a very dark place to be all the time if it was there with you all the time.
0: I have been there. I have been there where for three or four years, uh, i i simply people were worried i, I just wasn't going out and, and, and you know i was a very lonely character but i got through that um i went to alpha a uh, 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 church at uh, church somebody dragged me to church and i went there and i a, a different attitude but um i absolutely love my work um uh, you know it's fascinating the one the the one thing that i have done is i've my writing style has developed that I bring my readers on my road trips with me. There's dark times and I make them laugh and then, you know, I go into trivia sometimes and I try to take out the psycho speak out stuff and those simple things that everybody can understand about these, these killers. And, and, and I like to, my readers sort of like, they become to know me as a person in my writing because it's like, like we're chatting now. You know, just that's it. And, and they come along and they, they go to these places and I tell them what these places are like and what the killer smells are like, you know, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, you have an irreverence about your writing and a dark sense of humour throughout it. Um, and maybe that loneliness that existed for a while was really just writing and not just the subject matter because I think a lot of writers can feel that way. It is a very lonely existence.
0: Tell me about it. Yeah, it is. Um, Covid for me, Covid has been like almost like a holiday. Keeps keeps me in front of my PC. <laughs> but um, yeah, it is. You're right. You you've nailed it. it. It it can be you're you're in in front front of your PC and you're living and breathing it. And I think some famous guy years ago said, Look, if you take a pen and ink away from a writer, he commits suicide.
1: And After COVID, which is hopefully soon, are there places in the world that you like to visit, that you like to go and forget about the darkness of the world you do write about?
0: Uh, I love the Far East now. I don't go back to America. America's turned into a... It's a mess. Got mass murder. 45 mass killings in a month there now. And it's a a totally neurotic... um, I'm just... Doing something with um, the U.S. president at the moment, Biden, on something on gun control, and and to me, it's a neurotic society. And I find that further east you go, you come away from this materialistic stuff, and you get to places like the Philippines, where they're poor as church mice. Um, they have terrible weather, poverty is record, but they're the happiest people in the world. So I spend a lot when this thing, I spend a lot of time in the Philippines. Um, in fact. Two years ago, November last year, um, the McCarty homicide, they knew I was around, and, and I worked on a case out there of a working girl, that a, a 34-year-old working girl, a beautiful girl she was too, and she had, she had to support her kids, bless her, and she was, you know, and, um, she was um, killed with a hatchet. She'd been tied up and then brutalised by a Western man who lived there, and they called me in and asked me to help them with that, and I did and they caught him. Um, But the Philippines are beautiful. You're laying on the beach at Palawan and it's, you know, that's it. I love it.
1: And you can switch off from from the darkness for a while. Christopher, thank you very much for your time today.
0: God bless you. Keep safe now.
1: (laughs) From Sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney.